as a pastor, I don't profess to have all the wisdom and all the knowledge about the church uh, that, uh, that you can have, for sure. But over the years, through reading the scriptures and being a Christian inside of a church and being a pastor in a church, there are some things that I've learned about the church. One of the things is that the church is a redeemed community who loves each other. But because of our fallenness, we sin against each other. And you know what we do when we sin against each other? We forgive each other. And then we love each other even more. We're a redeemed community who has disagreements with one another over convictions. But because we're redeemed, we work through our disagreements. And then we love each other even more. This is the nature of the church. When the church does not work through sin and does not work through disagreements graciously and lovingly, it can be described in a lot of ways, but redeemed is not one of them. Because Christ has resurrection power. He has the love of the crucifixion itself. He has infinite and omnipotent wisdom. And through His crucifixion and His resurrection and His wisdom, He gives all of that to His church so that we're able to relate to one another as He relates to us. Now, I've learned that, and I'm praying that that will be the case in our body, that we might know the reconciling love of Jesus Christ, that we might know the power of the resurrection of Christ, and that we might know the wisdom, the infinite wisdom of our resurrected and soon-to-return Lord. Now, now all of that is just a preface to say, turn to Colossians chapter 1, because Jesus Christ is going to speak to us today from Colossians 1, verses 18 through 20. I do not believe it's a coincidence that the Lord would have us in this text at this time, in this place. I do want to read verses 15 through 23 because it's the entire section. And then we'll go back and read uh, verses 18, 19, and 20 again. That'll be our focus this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Keep your eyes on the text. Look at verse 18, 19, and 20 again. I will focus on Paul's focus of Jesus Christ as I read this. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Can you see the focus on Jesus Christ there? Jesus Christ is supreme over everything. We said that last week. We said He is supreme over everything. That was truth number one in our study of Christology. And we said, how is He supreme? We said, He is supreme in His deity. Paul says it. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible and physical manifestation of the glory of God. We said, He is supreme in His authority that He is the firstborn of all creation, that He has the highest rank, He has the highest authority, He is the chief, the supreme, the preeminent one over all things that exist. He is supreme in His creation. That's what Paul says when he says, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He is over all of these things because He Himself created them. He is supreme in His eternality. That, that He has always existed because He is before all things, Paul says in this hymn. And there never was a time when Jesus did not exist because He is supreme in His eternality and He is supreme in His power. He says because He holds all things together, Jesus does. And so what, what we want to see is that Jesus is supreme over everything that is in a sovereign, preeminent, glorious, powerful way. The second truth that we want to see this morning is that He is supreme in His church. He is supreme in His church. Now let me tell you, there's a little nuance between those those two phrases that I just want you to pick up on. I say He's sovereign and supreme over everything, but He's supreme in His church. There's a level of intimacy, relationship, love, connectedness to the church that, that is, more, it is more real than it is over all of creation in a sense of relationship and love. And so we want to ask the question this morning, how is Jesus supreme in the church? How is Jesus supreme in the church? Because that's our number two truth here. He is supreme in the church. And, and the first thing that we must see is that He is supreme in His headship. He is supreme in His headship. This is the title over the second part of this hymn that Paul writes. He says, He is the head of the body, the church. What Paul wants us to do is to consider the function of the head to the body. I think it's easy to just read the phrase and keep on reading and not really give thought to it. All right? And I don't think that any of us wants to think very long about a head detached from its body. All right? That's morbid. All right? But 
But what we have to do is kind of shock ourselves into thinking about what is the essence, what is the centrality and the significance of a head, a human head, to a human body. Because we've got to think about that if we want to know what it means that Christ is the head of the body. You all agree with that? Yeah. All right? And so, so I've, had a, I've had all week to think about this and to meditate on it. And th- these are the conclusions that I have come to. All right? First of all, Because Jesus is head of the body, He gives purpose to the church. He gives purpose to the church. I was speaking to a group of, uh, uh, a a team, uh, a ball team this week, and I was speaking to them very specifically about purpose. And purpose is the reason you exist. That's what purpose is. The reason you exist. And I told those guys, just like I will tell you, I don't think that there is anything more tragic than a life that has no purpose. A person who feels no purpose. It's tragic. You are a a, a wandering person in the sea of humanity. You are like a ship that's been set out to sail on the sea. It has no direction. It has no destination. It just takes, it just goes wherever the wind blows it next. There's nothing more tragic than that because every every person was created for a purpose. And every church was created for a distinct purpose. And Christ gives us that purpose. But if there is something... That, that, that is, uh, if there's nothing more tragic than a, purpose that, a person that has no purpose, I think there's nothing more sad than a person or a church that is living for the wrong purpose. I have, I have hundreds of people in my, my phone, my Rolodex in my phone. And I have a lot of friends and acquaintances and people that I do things with. And there are people in my phone who, who are living to make more and more and more money. That is their goal. That is their purpose in life. It's the accumulation of money. I have other friends and acquaintances whose their goal is power. And they are trying to rise higher and higher and higher in power. And that's their whole purpose for living. Listen, there's nothing more sad than that. Because the objective purpose of every person's life is to live for the glory of God and their own joy and the joy of all peoples and they either either don't see it they ignore it or they deny it and now they're living in a direction that's going to send them downward rather than upward now when it boils down here to Christ I want to tell you Christ has given us our purpose Listen, y'all, this purpose over here that that Phil pointed out earlier, that's just not something that we plucked out of thin air. That's not something we said, oh, we think that that sounds good. That's a nice jingle. Listen, we read Genesis to Revelation. This is what we believe Jesus Christ says. I have birthed the church, and you exist to pursue my Father's glory. You exist to pursue your own joy and the joy of all peoples by worshiping me, by fellowshipping with my love, by discipling and learning and growing about me and then taking my message and my person and my work and sending it out to the world. That's your purpose. All right, so so as the head, Christ gives us purpose. And I just want to tell you guys this. I am never bored And I never wake up in the mornings feeling like a rudderless ship. Because I know 
that Jesus Christ has put Ryan Limbaugh on this planet to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people through worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. And I wake up with that knowledge every single day. He's given that to his church. I belong to the church. He's given it to me. Not only does he give us purpose, he gives us life. He gives us life. This is part of his headship. In, the, in the, this culture that Paul is speaking into, people thought that the head was the source of the human life. And so when he says that he, gives, he, he, he is the head of the body, he's saying he gives life to the church. Now, there are, there are plenty of churches that look alive on the outside, but are dead as a doornail on the inside. Now, I don't really know what dead as a doornail actually means, but it sounds really dead, all right? And so I wanted to say that term, all right? This is the thing, all right? There are plenty of churches who have a lot of activity and a lot of ministry and a lot of programs. They have a kids program, a youth program, a college program, a singles program, a divorce recovery program, a drug recovery program, a senior citizens program. They have mission trips, short-term trips, long-term trips, everything in between. They have ball fields and, and cafeterias and and, and, and coffee shops, and, and they've got everything that you possibly have, and you look at it, and you're like, man, there is life there. But when God puts His divine t- stethoscope to its chest, He hears nothing. There's no heartbeat. Why? Because Christ is not central in that place. Because Christ is not central. Other things have taken centrality. Other things have taken preeminence. It may be a good cause. It may be a wonderful cause. It may be a a truly humanitarian cause. But when Christ is not central in a church, He is not head there. And so as the head, Christ supplies the lifeblood to the church. His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His powerful resurrection, His ascension, and His future return forms the lifeblood of the church of Jesus Christ. And so He gives life. And then as the head, He gives direction to the church. Okay, so He gives us our purpose, He gives us our life, and He gives us direction. I I love the fact that Jesus Christ gives us very specific leadership and guidance. I love that fact. He doesn't leave us ignorant about what to do. He doesn't leave us guessing about where to go. You guys are probably all familiar with Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. In that passage, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I just want to use that, that direction that he gives as an example. We just look at that. It's so practical. As the head of the church, the first thing that Jesus tells his church to do is to go. Go! He doesn't say stay. He doesn't say hang around for a little while. He doesn't say build it and they will come. He says go. Go. Alright? Leave. Be on your way. Go somewhere. And so the church should orient its life in, in such a way that we are going places. 
We have orders from headquarters. And those orders are to go, to be on our way. And then he says, make disciples. And one thing that we've got to always observe in our particular Christian culture is he does not say, make decisions of all the nations. He says, make disciples of all the nations. That is, teach them and instruct them in the way that they should be a Christian. Then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, take every person who believes in Him, who trusts in His work, and put them in the water and outside of the water in order to represent their former life of death and now their current life of life in Him and so that they can give a public and profound testimony that Jesus has saved their life. That's our orders. That's our direction. And then He gives that that instruction to teach them. Teach them all that I have commanded you. So take take all the words that I said, Jesus would say, the lessons that I gave you, the messages that I preached, the discipleship that I did with you, give it to them so that they can know how to live in their life. That's, That's one passage in Scripture where it clearly shows us that Jesus gives us direction as our head. Praise His name for that. And as our head, He gives us authority. He gives authority to the church. Uh, Just in that passage, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, this is important. The authority of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the Christian church. Jesus has total and supreme authority. He has the right to exercise unreserved, universal sovereignty over everything that exists. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm going to use my universal authority and give it to you, church, so that you can advance my glorious gospel in this world. Acts chapter 2 shows us this. Shows us that the Lord Jesus added to the number of the church day by day those who were being saved. They didn't do it. Peter and Paul didn't do that. They possessed the authority of Jesus Christ And He did that through them because they had that authority because He vested it in them. And that's the same way with the church. Phil mentioned that we're going to do a roundtable discussion on Friday night, March the 6th, on this issue of same-sex marriage. And some say, "Well, well, church, why would you do that? Why would you walk into a hornet's nest? Why would you draw undue attention to yourself um, in, in this really controversial area? Well, it's because Jesus is our head. It's because He's our authority. He has not been silent on this issue. He has spoken clearly and loudly and with authority. And so we want to say what Jesus Christ has said about marriage. And we have the authority to do so. Listen, I respect our government. I submit to our government's authority. But wherever Christ has spoken, I will speak. Therefore, Redeemer Church will speak. We possess His authority. And so He's supreme in His headship. He gives us purpose. He gives us meaning. He gives us life. He gives us authority. Right now, I I want to take a little detour. It is directly tied to the text. If you look down at verse 18, though, it says that Jesus Christ is the head of the body. What? What's the next word? The church. The church. Redeemer, I just want... I want you to see how Christ makes Himself 
central in the church. I want you to see how the church is the epicenter of the activity of Jesus Christ. I looked up some of the titles of the church this week. Just listen to what Jesus calls the church. The church is the body of Christ, Colossians 1.18. That is to say, He is the physical expression. The church is the physical expression of Himself. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is in covenant relationship of intimate love with the Savior of the universe. That's us. We're the bride of Christ. We are the city of the living God, Hebrews 12 tells us. We are the place where the glory of God dwells. That's incredible. We are the pillar in support of the truth. If you want to know what truth is, if you want to learn and grow in objective realities, then come to the church because we possess it. We are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3 says. So so the very glory and presence of God is manifested in His church. Now, what is the church? The church is not a building or a place where people go. The church is a group of redeemed people who love Jesus Christ, who love each other, and live together in harmony by the power of the gospel. That, that's really what the church is. Now, I want to make, some, I want to make uh, three distinctions of the church because I think it's helpful because I don't know that we think about this. The Scriptures speak of really uh, three nuances of the church. You have the universal church, the regional church, and the local church. Like in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul makes this grand statement about the purpose of the church. He's not necessarily talking about the one church in Ephesus. He's talking about the church overall. All local churches. Everyone who is redeemed. The church universal. So that you and I right now are in partnership with people in Kansas City, Missouri and Los Angeles, California and and Johannesburg, South Africa and in all over the world who love Jesus because we are part of the church universal. But then in Acts 9.31, I was reading this week, which really in a lot of ways instigated Uh, this excursus here, it says that those who were in the region, in Judea and in other places, they all grew in peace, in love, in comfort of the Holy Spirit and in His power. And and Luke describes them as the church. And so in in, in our ways, guys, the regional church would in, in many ways be like Grace Fellowship, Aniston Bible Church, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship. We are the church. We are the church. We're, re- we're a regional church. But then we get down very, very tightly to our own local body, Redeemer Church, where we have membership and we are part of a covenant community where we, where we live out all these things that Jesus has instructed. Now, in that Acts 9.31 passage, I think that's what struck me. Listen, listen to just what the church had in Acts 9. They had peace. They were built up. They walked in the fear of the Lord. And they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that has been my prayer. That Redeemer Church will know the peace of Christ. That we will be built up in the faith, in the gospel. 
that we will walk in great fear and reverence of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will know the comfort and the power of the Holy Spirit because that's exactly what the blessings the church should enjoy. The final thing that I want to say under this little excursion, we've said it two times in the last four weeks. The church is not the kingdom of God, but the church is an embassy, an outpost for the kingdom of God. And so, everywhere that you look around us, we're not looking at the kingdom. This is another land, this is another world, this is another nation. But here we are, we're an outpost, we're an embassy, and we represent the other land, the other world, which is the kingdom of God itself. And here we are as representatives and ambassadors to go out to this world, this other land, and represent the kingdom itself. We've got to understand that. We have to embrace that if we're going to be the church that Christ has called us to be. And and, and I say all of that simply to say that Jesus Christ is our head He gives our church authority. He gives us purpose. He gives us meaning. He gives us drive. And He gives us direction for us to be what He's called us to be. Okay, so He is supreme in His headship. I'll let you take a a breath for a moment. Second way we see that He is supreme is that He is supreme in His resurrection. He is supreme in His resurrection for the church. Look at the second part of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Keep your eyes on the text. He's the beginning. That is to say, He's the originator, the author, the founder of resurrection power. Paul says, He's the firstborn from the dead. Listen, Jesus is not the first person to ever be raised from the dead. If you remember, there was this 12-year-old girl who had died. Jesus walks in. He kneels down beside her bed, and, and He says, Talitha kumi. And she raises up. She begins to breathe again, and she has life. And then she goes and serves the family. You remember that? And then... One of Jesus' best friends has been dead for four days. And he comes down to the tomb and he weeps over his death and all of the the curse of death and, and all that that means. But he then yells out and says, Lazarus, come forth! And that's exactly what Lazarus did. Now both of those individuals were raised from the dead before Jesus ever was raised from the dead. So how is it that Paul could say, that He's the firstborn from the dead. Well, there's really two ways. Paul's not saying that He was the first one ever raised from the dead. He's saying that He's the chief one. He's the highest one who's ever been raised from the dead. And the second thing that Paul is essentially saying is, is do you know that, that, that this little girl's heart stopped beating at some point later in her life? Do you know that Lazarus' heart stopped beating at some point later in his life? They didn't experience resurrection. They experienced resuscitation. Jesus Christ is the only one who's been resurrected. His heart's still beating. It's never stopped. And so He is the firstborn from the dead. Why? Why is He the firstborn from the dead, Paul? That in everything, Paul says, He might be preeminent. He might be supreme. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes Him supreme over everything, and especially in the church. 
Now, I ask the question, how is Jesus supreme in his resurrection for the church? I mean, listen, all of that is true, and we're, we, we, we all want to say amen. Yes, Christ is risen from the dead. But how does that make him supreme? Well, I want to just tell you the three, the one, three reasons. This is significant to your life, and this is significant to this church. That in his resurrection, he justifies the church, he sanctifies the church, and he glorifies the church. Listen to Romans 4, verse 25. Paul says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We have a real strong tendency to think that the justification for our sins was only accomplished for us at the cross. But Paul says that the resurrection is absolutely necessary for us to be declared righteous before God. I was reading John Calvin this week. Listen to the connection between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and why they need each other. Listen to this. Neither the cross nor the resurrection achieve anything without the other one. By His death, sin was taken away. By His resurrection, righteousness was renewed and restored. For how could He by dying have freed us from death if He had yielded to its power? How could He have obtained the victory for us if He had fallen in the contest? Our salvation may thus be divided between the death and the resurrection of Christ. By the former, sin was abolished and death annihilated. By the latter, righteousness was restored and life revived. The power of the former being still bestowed upon us by the means of the latter. If you're connected with me right now and able to follow that, you can say hallelujah, hallelujah. Because Jesus' resurrection justifies us because it demonstrates His righteousness is supreme over death. I know this is a big thought and it's going deep. I just want to read to you something that I wrote. Without the resurrection, the power of death is greater than the power of Jesus' righteous life. And if death wins, sin wins. And if sin wins, you lose. And so justification is God's declaring sinners righteous. And He can do that because the righteous Jesus powerfully rose from the dead, showing His power over death. All right. Now, I want us to just think about an illustration for a moment so that we can, we can this thing can come home to us both in justification and sanctification. Think of it in banking terms. You've got a checkbook, you've got a debit card, and you've got a bank account. And it's got $100 in it. And you have been surfing the internet all day. You've been on eBay, you've been on Kohl's.com, Walmart.com, you've been on uh, Booksamillion.com, you've been on all of these dot-coms or retails, and you say, you know what, I just got to have some of this stuff. And so you take your checkbook, 
And you go to all the places that, that take checks and you just fill your shopping cart full of clothes and groceries and goods and, and MP3 players and, and, and everything else and you're just writing checks left and right. And three days later, the bank contacts you. You had $100 in your, in your account and now you have written checks for $10,000. You are seriously indebted to this bank. What Jesus Christ says is He says that in my death I am going to wipe away that debt. I'm just going to wipe it away. You, you, you no longer have any of those debts. But even better than that, I'm actually going to put your name on my account. And you have all of the resources that I have in my account. And you tap into that any time you need. And in your justification, you tap in to the fullness of my righteousness. You tap into the fullness of the resources of my holiness. And when you sin, hey, you go to my account and you draw out of my account so that you know that you're never going to be indebted again. Now that's the power of His resurrection. Without His resurrection, we don't have that. And so, His resurrection justifies the church. It also sanctifies the church. If you've got your Bibles open to Colossians 3, uh, and to Colossians 1, turn over to Colossians 3. I want you to see something really critical. The resurrection of Jesus intends to make you more holy. And not only that, it has the power to do so. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you have been raised with Christ, listen, the implication here is that Christ is raised from the dead. He's not in the tomb. He's not buried. He's alive. His heart is beating. He's exalted. He's on His throne. And if you have been raised with Him, then seek these things. Now if you just look down, like at verse 8. He says, now you must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. See that you've put off the old self with its practices. You know what he's saying right there, church? Look down at verse 8. Look down at anger, wrath, malice, slander. He's saying put away the manifestations of death. Put away the expressions of death. Why? Because you're not dead. Your Savior's not dead. Listen, every time you show sinful anger, that is showing death. Every time you show malice and wrath and slander, you're expressing death. Put it away. And look at verse 12. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one another has a complaint against each other, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
And do you know what he's saying right there? Put on all the manifestations of resurrection life. I don't have to stand here on a Sunday morning behind this pulpit and say, man, would y'all please just try not to be angry anymore? Just do the best you can. But I know in a lot of ways you're doomed to failure. What I can do is I can stand right here and I can say, based on the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, kill the sin of anger and cling to the purity of Christ's love, you can do it because you have the power of Jesus in you. And the third, the third part of His resurrection is that His resurrection glorifies the church. You don't have to turn there, but you can just mark down 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And what we will be is, has not yet been revealed. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, and we shall see Him as He is. I'll tell you, for almost my whole life, I have wanted to go back in time a couple thousand years and just to have seen Jesus at certain portions of His ministry. Like I, we, were, we were looking at the temptation of Jesus on Wednesday night, and I just have always pictured what that looked like. Satan tempting Jesus and Jesus going back to Satan with the Word of God and overpowering that temptation. I've often wanted to see Jesus, what it looked like when He was down underneath the boat sleeping and His disciples come to Him, wake Him up, bring Him out, and He says, peace be still, and everything goes still. I've, I've desperately wanted to see what Jesus looked like on the cross because I felt like if I could get a physical picture of what that looked like, it would, it would compel me toward a life of holiness. However flawed that thinking was, I'm just telling you that's what I've always wanted to see. But I want to tell you, there is nothing more motivating, nothing more glorious, and nothing more powerful than the image and the hope of not seeing the life of Jesus in His humility, but the glorification of Jesus in His exaltation. You and I need to fix our eyes on the exalted Christ on the glorified Christ, and long for His return, because when we see Him, we will be like Him. No more sin, no more brokenness, no more hurt, no more pain. He is supreme in His resurrection, both in our justification, sanctification, and glorification. Finally, church, I want you to look down at verses 19 and 20, and I want you to see that He's supreme in His reconciliation. He is supreme in His reconciliation. I'll read verses 19 and 20 again. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Keep your eyes on the text. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 teaches the humanity of Christ in His incarnation. Christ had to be human in order to be raised from the dead as a human. Otherwise, 
that resurrection wouldn't mean anything. He had to be human. But right here in verse 19, it teaches that the deity of Christ is necessary in His incarnation. Look, he says, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness. Christ possessed the unbroken, undiluted, undiminished nature of God Himself. He possessed the fullness of divine nature. So that when we look at Christ, we see the power of God. When we look at Christ, we see the love of God. When we look at Christ, we see the wisdom of God. When we look at Christ, we see the mercy of God. When we look at Christ, we see the grace of God. When we look at Christ, we see the unity and the reconciliation of God Himself. And so, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we know that we're fixing our eyes on God Himself. This is important. This is important because what does that have to do with reconciliation? Let me ask you a question. If we knew we were in trouble because of our sin, we got anger problems, we got jealousy problems, We've got money problems. We've got envy problems. We've got, uh, we've got lying problems. We've got all kinds of problems. And Jesus, who is God, had not died on the cross for our sins. But because we're all friends and I decide to be sacrificial, I say this, guys. Uh, this is what I'm going to volunteer to do. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. Micah, Joanne, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. Matt and Ashley, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. And so I go up on the cross voluntarily. And I go through what Jesus went through. Would that be sufficient to save you from your sins? No. Why not? Why not? Because I'm not spotless. I'm not blameless. I'm not pure. I'm not holy. I'm just like you are. And so... A stained, sinful, unholy sacrifice does absolutely nothing to absolve you from your sins. We have to have stainlessness, spotlessness, purity, and holiness in order for God to accept this sacrifice. And only God Himself could accomplish that. And so that is why the fullness of Godness in Jesus Christ was necessary for Him to make reconciliation. And so... And so I want to say this, God brings all things into right relationship with Himself by the blood of His cross. God brings all things into right relationship with Himself by the blood of His cross. Now, this is important, guys. To reconcile means to bring back into right relationship. Right relationship with Himself. Paul writes this letter to the church and he's speaking directly to the church. And in verses 21 and 22 and 23 next week, we're going to see how the church is fully and beautifully reconciled in a love relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? But right here in this hymn that he writes, he's not just talking about the church's reconciliation. He's talking about what I would call Cosmic reconciliation. I mean, just look down at the text. He uses the words all things on heaven and in earth. 
It's the, it's the same language that he used in 15, 16, and 17 to talk about everything that exists. And right now, if you're anything like me, you're wondering how is it that Jesus, and why is it that Jesus is going to reconcile every single thing, especially those who are in rebellion against Him? When we talk about the Gospel, we talk about just God's redemptive plan and all that. A lot of times we look at it like as an ark. Okay? And we start with creation, and we say, okay, we have the creation... And then the fall. And the fall cast everyone into sin. But then we look at the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then after the incarnation, we look at His death on the cross. And after His death, we look at His resurrection. And then we look at His ascension. And we say, look at this. We've got creation, fall, incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is Jesus Christ and this is the ark of the Gospel. And we leave off, we leave off the return of Christ and the ultimate reign of Christ over all things in which He's going to reconcile every single thing that exists and has ever existed to Himself. That is not a complete gospel. That has to be in there. That's part of the gospel arc. Listen, Jesus will return fully and finally one day and when He does, everything will change. Um, Wayne, would you put this picture up for them? Okay, this was at my house yesterday. Um, the girl that you see on the left is Mabel, and the girl you see on the right is Sarah Rose. All right? Mabel is the Limbaugh's new jersey calf. Okay? We got Mabel this week. And this picture is an example of the just really cool and precious relationship of an animal and a child. On Friday, Mabel was following Carson and Cody and Adam around the back pasture, following them everywhere they led her in the front yard. She ultimately followed them up onto our back porch and was about to follow them inside the kitchen. Literally. Literally. And if that picture right there does not give you a glimpse of the reconciling of all things, both in the animal, plant, human, world, and everything, I don't know what does, but let me tell you something that's sad. Is that last night we had to take Mabel and we had to put her inside the barn and stall her up because there are coyotes who, if they smelled her, would come and attack her and kill her like that. Listen to Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now this is Jesus Christ He's referring to. And listen to what He says. Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist. Faithfulness the belt of His loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. Can you imagine the day when we will not fear snakes and spiders? Can you imagine the day when there is absolutely no broken relationships? Can you imagine the day when you get out of bed and there are no aches and pains or illnesses or diseases inside of your body? Can you imagine the day when you wake up and you live and you don't sin the entire day? Can you imagine the day when you actually not only behold the glory of Jesus, but you, you have and possess the glory of Jesus in your body? Can you imagine that day? I more than can imagine it. I look forward to it. I'm anticipating it. Because I know it's a reality because one day Jesus Christ will reconcile all things to Himself and be put in absolutely right order under His sovereign, supreme, and loving authority. Bow your heads with me. Redeemer Church, I want to ask you, are you living this day in light of that day? Are you living this day in light of that day? Because there is a sense in which Jesus Christ is supreme over everything in order to show His supremacy in the church. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today. Jesus Christ is your head. He gives you life and purpose and meaning and direction and authority. He wants to be the epicenter of your life and your family and this Redeemer Church. He wants to exercise His sovereign supremacy in this little tiny church in Oxford, Alabama in the friendship community. And He wants to show Himself supreme over everything and inside this body through the Gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Himself. Are you living this day, in light of that day, that you might shine forth the glory of Jesus Christ in all of His supremacy. We sing the glories of the reconciling Christ um, and then we don't go out missionally 
and seek to reconcile people to Christ, we would be the definition of hypocrites. Um, and I think that it would be derived in a lot of ways of not, not, not having a love for people, not having a real affection for their souls. I was reading C.S. Lewis this week, and listen to what C.S. Lewis said about this reconciling work and the nature of how God is going to bring all things to Himself. And sometimes that's in the rightful, just punishment of people who have rejected His Son. But listen to how that applies to mine and your life. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Adrian Warnock on his book uh, on the resurrection says, when we fully appreciate what the people around us will one day become, we will treat everyone we meet with greater honor and importance and will be more aware of our influence. So how can you and I help people on their journey to heaven rather than hell? If you have a spiritual need, if you're struggling, if you need to know Christ, if you have something that's really burdening you, uh, I'm going to be in this back room over here to my left, your right, and I'm going to ask Ron if he doesn't have another responsibility, Ron, if you will come with me. And uh, if you've got any questions or concerns about our leadership uh, with the church in specific areas, please come and talk to us as soon as the service is over. I want you to go in the power of Christ's resurrection uh, resurrection and I also want you to go with the confidence of his reconciling work of all things that exist amen you're dismissed